for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, what started out as a way to pay tribute to his best friend who died when they were just 13 and explore what happened became an international success. And uh, the short movie that it's based on is now nominated for an Oscar. Director Vesa René Lorci shares the story of his movie, his first movie, the Oscar-nominated Invincible. Journalist Sarah Trelevin joins me to talk about her latest article in Toronto Life called The Great Pretenders, the almost unbelievable story about how a mother in Mississauga claimed her twin daughters were actually adopted, that they were the children of an Inuit woman to access money meant for Indigenous students and how and why the whole scheme fell apart. New York Times feature writer Laura Holson's family played a unique role in the development of the Pop-Tart and she joins me to share her story. Ontario's top doctor is warning public health agencies to be ready and prepared for a potential increase in the number of measles cases after two were reported in the greater Toronto area of late. Dr. Kieran Moore sent a memo to public health agencies on Tuesday citing a dramatic global rise in the number of measles cases. Part of the concern here is that falling vaccination rates could lead to the possibility of wider outbreaks. Vaccine expert Dr. Paul Offit is with me to talk about his new book, Tell Me When It's Over, an insider's guide to deciphering COVID myths and navigating our post-pandemic world, including the return of things such as measles. But first, spending of public money on for-profit staffing agencies to provide nursing in our healthcare system is growing exponentially. Why did it happen? What kind of problems is it causing? And how do you fix it? So let's talk about public spending on nurses hired through private agencies because it continues to skyrocket in this country. And it's a really a matter of concern. I mean, if you boil it down to what's going on here, this is a question of supply and demand, but it's a trend that began to grow exponentially during the pandemic. And it's the result of something of a perfect storm that's plaguing our healthcare system broadly. Nurses in particular find themselves increasingly overworked and so are either burning out, opting for early retirement, or simply leaving the public system for other alternatives. Uh, Here's one nurse in Toronto. This is two years ago, you know, raising the red flag about this issue. The shortages are almost at 50% in some places, and we've lost half our staff. There's almost no shift where you're not short-staffed. There you have it. So what that means is that many health authorities are turning to these private agencies to fill the void, and that is very expensive. The Globe and Mail did an investigation recently that found in some provinces annual spending on nursing agencies has jumped to tens of millions of dollars in just a few years. For example, Newfoundland and Labrador spent $35.6 million on staffing agency nurses from April to August of last year. That's up from an average of just a million dollars annually before the pandemic. So from 1 million to 35.6 million. The investigation found that one Toronto-based agency was charging Newfoundland's Western region the equivalent of $312 an hour per specialty nurse and $283 an hour per registered nurse. Now, the central region pays the CHL, the equivalent of this agency, the equivalent of about $172 an hour per, per RN. Compare that to what the public sector pays them. They earn about $34 to $42 an hour, so it's a huge difference. In New Brunswick, the same agency charges the equivalent of about $306 an hour. Public sector New Brunswick registered nurses earn between $37 and $45. Uh, there are also questions about money charged to the provinces for food and accommodation, and this is really about more than those two provinces. As I mentioned, this is an issue being seen right, seen right across the country. Uh, A report not long ago in 2022 found the 78 hospitals in Ontario covered by the Ontario Nursing Association uh, spent more than $168.3 million in taxpayer dollars uh, on for-profit nursing agencies in the first three quarters of 2022. 
and that was a 341% increase over the 38.1 million hospitals that spent on private agency nurses in all of 2020-2021. So this is a big issue. Nursing unions are now asking auditors general in their respective provinces to look into this. But joining me now with more on it is Tim Guest. He's the CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association. Tim, thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. Happy to be here. I guess this latest series of reports about spending specifically in Newfoundland and in uh, Labrador and in, and in New Brunswick won't have come as a huge surprise to you, but it is, uh, it is a problem that I think a lot of people are aware of and concerned about. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, it was something that uh, we have been monitoring for a while. Uh, it's an issue that uh, we actually cautioned government about many, many months ago that we thought that they needed to keep an eye on it, that we were concerned about pricing of, of agency nursing uh, ratcheting out of control and, and, and needing to have some limits on it. But uh, I have to say it was, it was a little surprising to see the numbers uh, in front of your face. It was, it was quite, quite an, a staggering uh, increase. Yeah, tell me about that, Tim. For people who don't understand, I mean, the, the average. I mean, this might have been. This is different, I guess, from province to province. But let's say the the high, the, you know, average or highest would be about fifty dollars an hour. The agencies are taking uh, exponentially more than that for providing those same services. Oh yeah, some of the the rates that uh, we saw in the article that uh, they're charging in is is you know, I think I saw one that was quoted as being three hundred dollars an hour, which is like excessively higher than what uh, a nurse would be getting paid uh, who was on staff in that institution. How did we get here, Tim? I mean, I think we understand the problem, which is it's a supply and demand issue. The agencies have the supply and therefore they're able to fill the demand and then the price becomes whatever you're willing to pay, right? But how did we get to this point where agencies have that much leverage? Well, you know, Ben, I think there's a, a couple of, of issues that I would say um, contribute. One is um, nurses are dissatisfied in the current work environment. They um, want to have you know, improved uh, scheduling flexibility. They want uh, to be uh, respected and, and they don't want to be called for overtime every day. They want to have reasonable workloads. And, you know, they, they want uh, to be treated fairly from a, a compensation perspective. And when they see opportunities in the private sector to go to these organizations and get those things they want, you can't really look down at the, upon them for wanting to do that. And, and so I think, you know, part of what's pushing them out of the public system is the work environment that they're working in. And that, you know, we have suggested to, to government that, you know, that needs to be where they and the employers focus initially, and that is retention, looking at what are the contributing factors that are pushing nurses to want to leave their jobs and 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 fixing those things. And so I think it, it created the perfect storm because the hospitals and, and health authorities, they have services they need to provide that the public is expecting them to provide. And they're looking at whatever means they can in order to, to maintain services in communities. So, you know, you can understand why they would make the decisions they've made. It's just unfortunate that they're having to pay these um, outrageously high costs for uh, these nursing services. And so I think, you know, rather than try and focus on keeping the, the nurses in, in the public system, they're now having to buy them back. And, uh, and it's just 
been a vicious circle that's gotten worse and worse. Yeah, I, I've interviewed ER, you know, doctors here, and, and of course, there's never any complaints about the nurses that they get from these staffing agencies. In fact, oftentimes they're very experienced and very good at what they do. Uh, so in that sense, there hasn't been an impact on quality of care, I don't think. I think really what we're talking about here is just money. And the idea, I think, that was put by someone in your organization, that for a very long time, public health agencies and hospitals and so on operated on the premise that nurses just would never leave. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, that has historically been the case. We've seen over the years fluctuations where there's no vacancies, there's no positions to apply for. And then five years later, 10 years later, there's a, a, a shortage. And and there's all kinds of reasons why those ebbs and flows have happened. But um, I think that's largely been the, the premise that people have had is that nurses won't leave. They won't move from their communities when, when they have jobs because uh, they want to keep them. You know, I think what we have seen in the past is is nurses stayed in roles for long periods of time because of them wanting to have uh, pensions. I would say that the the values of the newer generation of nurses that are coming up are fundamentally different. What's important to them is different. What they want is different. And we need to change with the times. We can't continue to do things the way we always have and expect to get results. It's just not going to work. Tim Guest is CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association. We're talking about uh, an ongoing problem uh, in Canadian healthcare, which is the amount of money paid to staffing agencies to provide nursing services because there's a shortage of nurses. We know this. And so staffing agencies have moved in to fill the void. In some senses, you can't really point the finger at them too much because they're simply filling a void and uh, offering a service that's needed and demanding, I suppose, what they can get for it, which may seem uh, may seem usurious to some. But uh, essentially, how do you put this genie back into the bottle? Tim, I mean, I suppose there's some ways that government could approach here. They do want the Auditor General. I mean, unions have been asking the Auditor Generals across the country to look into this to see if we're not being paying way too much. But I think what you pointed out earlier is that the system, the, the problem goes deeper than that. It's not just about wasting money. It's about how do you keep nurses in the system to begin with so you're not left sort of seeking them out at any any cost necessary later? Exactly. You know, if you if you support the the nurses and and you talk to them about what's important for them to want to remain in, in those roles and and are, are able to implement some of those strategies, I think that's one of the key ways that we turn this situation around. You know, we have seen some examples uh, in Nova Scotia as an example when uh, they capped or. or and tried to reduce they they imposed rules that they would not accept travel nurses that lived within the province uh from these these organizations and and for i i i heard from colleagues around the province that that did incent some nurses to return back into roles within the public health system and so you know i, I think they're they're Organizations have made attempts to try and change this. Quebec, as an example, has has been very strong in their position that they want to eliminate the use of, of travel nursing. And you know, I think when you put limits, it does uh, force different decisions to be made. And, but I, you know, I think you know from from my perspective, I think the best uh, way to approach this is to solve the underlying issues, and that's to to 
deal with workload in a, a more uh, effective way. It's to look at the work that nurses are doing. And if there are other individuals that can do some of the, the, the work that nurses are doing, that's not really nursing work. It does enable uh, them to be more focused on, on care of, of patients and clients. There, uh, it's flexible scheduling. It is access to resources for continuing education. It's things like access to daycare so that nurses that are working shifts uh, have options for childcare that, that they can't get in the community. It's, it's things like mental health supports and, and some of those things when they experience tra- traumatic uh, things at work that, that uh, are impacting uh, their mental state uh, state it is it's uh, supports for new nurses that are entering the workforce so that they have more senior nurses that they can go to to get help when right now there it's difficult to get that because in some instances when you look at a at a a, a nursing unit in a hospital exam as an example 80% of the nurses could be working five years or less. And so they don't have access to nurses with a lot of experience to help them with uh, situations and cases that they have not seen before. And, and so we need to be creative with how we put those supports in place so that these individuals stay. Um, one of the, the things that we're seeing is nurses that are gradu- graduating from nursing school recently, there's a significant number of them that are leaving within their first five years in the profession. Right. We can't keep having that. Just as they're getting settled in their jobs, they're leaving. Yes. And it's because they're traumatized. Right. I, I suppose that being said, we will have to make sure, and I, I guess governments are, are and, and health authorities, period, and auditors general across the country, should be looking into just exactly what these companies are charging and how, because it seems like there could be some, there is some suspicious stuff in there. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know all the specifics of, of you know, the, the situation, but, uh, you know, I, I do know that we did have conversations with government, you know, 18 months ago or so when we saw this trend initial, initially coming to, to investigate whether there was any limits that they could put on what these agencies could charge the public health system, uh, you know, and I don't know the legal, all the legalities of what's possible for government and what levers they have, but um, we're certainly seeing our, our capitalist system in in earnest uh, with this situation. A reminder of what perhaps a nurse is worth, right? And to some extent, um, what was your what was the response from government? Were they open to what you were talking about? Were you talking to obviously you're talking to the provinces here? Uh, no, we we had the same the conversation with the federal government. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they were they were interested in hearing our perspective, and and uh, and you know I, I, they never they never um, responded back, uh, being uh, negative or 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 not uh, thinking that uh, the idea was sound. But uh, you know they they need to go back and look at what uh, their levers are and what is possible for them, and 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 we wouldn't necessarily know what those are. But I think you know we did at least give them a heads up that we saw this as a as a problem that that needed to to have some action to prevent it from getting to the place that it is. Well Tim, I appreciate uh, your time on this. Thank you. My pleasure. 
Ontario's top doctor is warning health agencies to be ready and prepared for a potential increase in the number of measles cases after two were reported recently in the greater Toronto area. Dr. Kieran Moore sent a memo that was obtained by Global News to public health agencies today, citing a dramatic global rise in the number of measles cases. Measles, of course, is a highly contagious viral infection that can spread through the air and close contact. Symptoms include a rash, fever, cough, fatigue. In Canada alone, there have been five confirmed cases already in 2024. That compares with a total of 12 in all of 2023. Uh, on Friday, Toronto Public Health announced the most recent confirmed case is a baby who is now in the hospital, or was at least. The infant had recently travelled outside of Canada. Measles has been detected elsewhere in Ontario, as well as in Saskatchewan and Quebec. And part of the concern is that falling vaccination rates could lead to the possibility of wider outbreaks. Here's Dr. Isaac Bogosh. There's very little wiggle room for, for measles vaccine. You really need to have immunity over 90% and preferably over 95% in a, in a population. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh there. The World Health Organization recently warned about global outbreaks of measles tied to falling vaccination rates. And the CDC in America late last month issued an alert about cases popping up in the U.S., mostly among kids and teens who weren't vaccinated. Philadelphia-based vaccine expert Dr. Paul Offit warns that the return of measles in countries such as Canada and the U.S. is a, quote, canary in the coal mine for the ability to fight the spread of vaccine-preventable diseases. He sees it as part of the fallout from vaccine misinformation and politicization in the U.S., specifically that exploded during the pandemic his new book out now is called tell me when it's over an insider's guide to deciphering covid myths and navigating our post-pandemic world dr paul offit is director of the vaccine education center at the children's hospital of philadelphia and he joins me now thanks so much for your time tonight dr Offit. thank you Tell me about the inspiration for the book, because it, it certainly is timely. I think uh, we'll talk about the measles situation in a second, but uh, certainly we're seeing the the aftermath of uh, those COVID years now at this point. Well, for me, I think the inspiration was just the contrast of, on the one hand, having this very unusual virus, had unusual biological characteristics, unusual clinical characteristics. We isolated it and sequenced it in January, and then in record time, using a technology we'd never used to make a vaccine before, messenger RNA, in 11 months, we'd done two large clinical trials. The vaccine was safe, it was effective, and then we did something else amazing. We figured out how to mass produce, mass distribute, mass administer a vaccine in a country that didn't really have an infrastructure for mass vaccinating adults. And then by July of 2021, we had vaccinated 70% of the United States uh, citizens, and then we hit a wall. 30% of the country simply refused to be vaccinated. And as a consequence, 300,000 people lost their lives because they chose to lose their lives because they refused to be vaccinated. It's just a striking contrast to me. And the, the part of the, the reason for writing the book was to try and figure out why this happened. I mean, I think a lot of us who watched it unfold can guess there was a politicization of the process. It built into some pre-existing suspicion around vaccines that was already out there. Obviously, the media landscape, social media played into it as well. What else did you find? I think there were a number of things. I think one is a massive amount of misinformation and dis disinformation that was out there to feed into whatever conspiracy theory you liked. I think the other thing was that... Um, 
You know, we learn as we go is the truth of it. I mean, we we learned about the virus. We learned about the vaccine. uh, We learned about the disease, things that we didn't know at the beginning. And I think for some people, they saw some of the things that we didn't get right early on and said, see, you can't trust these people. They tell me one thing and then something else happens. And I think one of the big things was was we created an unrealistic expectation for what this vaccine could do. This vaccine can protect you against severe disease, but it's not going to protect you against mild disease for long. And I think when people got mild illness after they'd been vaccinated and from their point of view been forced to be vaccinated they said save the cdc told me that this would protect me they lied to me the word trust is an interesting one because i think a lot of the problem here you're, you're right about the, the disinformation and the misinformation but there was this element of trust out there when it came to pharma and so on that had already been eroding somewhat and along comes this well, we're certainly a more cynical, more distrustful, more litigious society than we ever were. Uh, although I would have argued that that if you looked at the, this vaccine in terms of how effective it was, it was remarkably effective, remains remarkably effective against preventing uh, serious disease. And so so what didn't we do? I think we, we should have been, um, the CDC especially, I think should have been out in front of this and every other day, every third day saying, look, this is what we know now. This is why we're making this recommendation now. And then when they didn't get some things right, like, for example, in July of 2021, calling mild or asymptomatic illnesses breakthrough infections, that was the wrong word. It created uh, this notion that the vaccine had somehow failed when that wasn't true. And then the bivalent vaccine, I think, was at best a step side ways. It wasn't uh, any better than what we had. And and I think people were confused by all that. I think people were very confused in August of 2021 when President Biden said, we're going to offer in one month a third dose of vaccine for everyone over 12 years of age without ever consulting the FDA or the CDC. And he created this notion of who was fully protected. It wasn't clear to people what it meant to be fully protected at that point. It was confusing. I think it remains confusing. That with that said, and with with the the impact, I mean, we know it's not gone, but with the impact of COVID having waned, you're now seeing this move into other circles and measles being, as you called it, the canary in the coal mine and all this. Uh, how so? Right. I think what happened was by mandating vaccines, by um, being as as in some ways heavy handed as we were, we're pu- sort of public health uber Alice. I think we. Um, we upset people. I think we probably didn't need to close elementary schools for as long as we did. I think that uh, some of the mandates, especially at universities later on, really didn't make any sense. And um, so what happened is we leaned into this libertarian left hook where people you know, now are pushing back against mandates, period, including school mandates, which are critical for protection against measles. It, there, it's, it was the, the, the evolution of school mandates that eliminated measles from the United States in 2000. And it's the erosion, at least in the attention of those mandates, using philosophical exemptions to vaccines or or religious exemptions to vaccines that's caused there to be an erosion in vaccine rates in young children. And now you're starting to see measles come back. And it's always the first disease to come back of the vaccine preventable diseases because it's the most contagious. Yeah, tell me a bit about measles, because I think a lot of us who grew up, I mean, I was born in 1970, obviously I, it was around, but it wasn't necessarily. I mean, it's just not something that we've ever encountered much of through many of our lifetimes, if you're North American specifically. 
Well, I was born in 1951. And like everyone born when I was born, we all had measles. I mean, measles right. would affect three to four million children every year, up to 15 years of age. It would cause 48,000 hospitalizations and 500 deaths. And the deaths were from either severe dehydration or pneumonia or encephalitis, which is infection of the brain. I mean, I've seen a lot of measles in my life and uh, measles makes you sick. And I think th that's what, what what's gotten lost here. It's not only that we've largely eliminated measles from North America, we've eliminated the memory of measles. People don't remember how sick this virus can make you. A, a large percentage of children who have measles, even if they don't necessarily have respiratory symptoms, will often have abnormal chest x-rays. Measles really is a pneumonia. What I mean, and we've seen just how much more are we seeing of it? I was reading, of course, today that we've now had five cases in Canada, which seems like a low number, but there were only 12 in all of 2023. These are not cases that were caught here in Canada, but somewhere abroad. And it's also incredibly virulent, right? So once it's reintroduced, it's hard to shake, is it not? Right. I think get to a thousand or two thousand cases, which we had in this country in, in uh, 2019, and you'll start to see children dying of measles again. I think what scares people about measles is that it is so contagious. So it, it the, the so-called contagiousness index, meaning how many people would you typically infect during a day, assuming you were infected and everybody you came in contact with was susceptible, is about 18. You'll infect 18 people a day. Compare that to COVID or influenza, where the number is really two or three. And, and you don't have to have direct contact with somebody with measles. You just have to be in their airspace within two hours of them being there. It's that contagious. Dr. Paul Offit is with us this half hour. He's director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. His new book is called Tell Me When It's Over, an insider's guide to deciphering COVID myths and navigating our post-pandemic world. Uh, so, I mean, Dr. Offit, I, I think what was pretty clear, and this was pre-COVID actually, is that this vaccine hesitancy and getting rid of these mandates, we were going to see the return of things like like measles, if not other, other things. How, how would you, when you went about writing this book, how do you try to earn that trust back at this point with that segment of the population who seem to feel like somehow that trust has been lost for good. I think the CDC, especially in our country, needs to be out in front of the media every other day, explaining what's going on, why it's going on, and, and, and how important it is to vaccinate your children. Because there's one of two options. E either one, we can try and educate people about how serious measles is and how important it is to be vaccinated, and that's a way to prevent all this. Or the second possibility is that, that enough children will be hurt, suffer, be hospitalized, or die from this virus, that that's what gets people's attention. I hope that's not what it comes to. I hope we can get people's attention by educating them and not having the disease educate them, that it's just fear of the disease once you see it and you see the, how much it's hurting people, that that's what educates people because it's invariably our children, the, the most vulnerable among us that suffer our ignorance. How much do you chalk this up, not all of it, but some of it, to just pure fatigue given what the pandemic put everyone through when it came to talk of vaccines and the fighting about it. And, you know, although, I mean, again, like in America and Canada, the vast majority of people were vaccinated at least once or twice. But but just people, it, I, even for a show like mine, I just got the sense after a while, people just didn't want to talk about this anymore. And maybe that's part of the problem with where we're at right now. No, I, th I think you're right. I think people are, are tired of talking about vaccines. Actually, I include myself among them. Right. It's hard to keep talking about this for the last four years. But I, I do think that's different than saying, look, I just don't want to get these vaccines. I think that the, the, the government or the public health agencies are wrong. I don't think this is an important disease to prevent. D don't say that, because the minute you say that, 
what you start to see is measles comes back because that's always the first one to come back. And that's what happened between 89 and 91 in our country when we had 50,000 hospitalizations and about well, a little less than 200 deaths because we'd sort of let our guard down. And that that led to really the second dose measles recommendation. With that, we, we eliminated measles from the United States by the year 2000. But it's come back because people, I think, are just complacent and uh it's it's a, not a, a a game you want to play. This is not a disease you want to relive. I think you spoke of this, and this is this idea of collective responsibility, right? That there that one of the things that was maybe eroded through COVID, unfortunately, because of and you and I think you put it well in terms of the heavy hand. Uh, maybe it was necessary, but the heavy hand obviously turned some people off in this. And that sense of collective responsibility that getting vaccinated against measles for vaccinating your children against measles is a collective responsibility, not just a personal choice. Uh, and that that too has been blurred, I think, in the last few years. No, you're right. I mean, a choice not to get a vaccine against measles is a choice not only to put yourself at risk or your children at risk, but those with whom they come in contact. I mean, if you choose not to get a tetanus vaccine, for example, and you get tetanus, no one's going to catch tetanus from you. It's not a contagious disease. This is a contagious disease. And at least in the U.S., there's about 9 million people who are severely immune compromised who can't be effectively vaccinated. They depend on those around them to protect them. And do we have a responsibility to those people? I think we do. As a last question, as you went through this book, it always strikes me that we need to acknowledge those who were put off by by the way that COVID was handled. We don't necessarily have to agree with their assessment of the, with the vaccine's uh, efficacy or not, but we need to understand the emotional reaction to it and try and find a way to have those conversations to bring people who are now, uh, you know, not at all uh, willing to, to talk about vaccinations or whether they're effective or not, uh, to try and bring them back in the fold. I'm sure there are people who will never come back in the fold, but there must be people, people out there who are wondering whether they need to be so hardline about this. Yeah, well, I, actually, there's a story I tell in the book of a, uh, an African-American surgeon in Philadelphia named Ayla Stanford, who, when COVID hit, sort of went into the North Philadelphia community, a predominantly black and brown community, and sat in people's uh, living rooms and, and explained to them how important it was to get the vaccine. She included many other people in her group. It was called the Black Doctors COVID Consortium. And, and she was sitting in the room of people who looked like her, who trusted her. And eventually she was able to vaccinate 50,000 people in North Philadelphia, which was a up to that point, a very much unvaccinated community. So it's possible, I think, to do that. You just have to find who people trust and then uh, give them the information they need to help those who who are trust, who do trust them. Having seen all that you've seen, do you have hope? Well, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder, so I always have hope. But yeah, I I, I do. I think uh, there were a lot of good things that came out of this pandemic. uh, And I think uh, we could definitely, hopefully we'll learn from it. Dr. Offit, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You may have missed this news last week, but the man behind one of the most famous and enduring convenience foods of the past 60 years passed away earlier this month. William Bill Post of Grand Grand Rapids, Michigan, was 96. Now, you probably don't know the name, but chances are you've sampled his invention. Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. Eat them in the morning, eat them in the evening. Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. Loads of flavors for big and little shavers. Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. Try chocolate fudge. Chocolate vanilla cream too. Creamy frosting, both brand new. Try the ones with fruit inside. Real fruit filling, that's Kellogg's Pride. Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. The ones with more... 
Yeah, they don't write jingles like they used to, do they? Bill Post was a Keebler plant manager in Grand Rapids in the early 60s when he was approached by executives at Kellogg's to create a breakfast food for the toaster. Now, the company Post, not to be confused with Bill, whose family name is Post, announced its new product to the press in 1964, several months before they went to market, calling them Country Squares. So because Post had revealed their Country Squares before they were ready for market, Kellogg's, it became essentially a battle became a cold war, a Pop-Tart war, or at least a toaster war, if you prefer, to develop. Kellogg's wanted to develop their own version. Uh, so Bill Post and a team of co-workers started to work on something that they called Fruit Scones, which is a terrible name, of course. They never would have sold. They soon became Pop-Tart, sort of like pop art. And that all came together in just four months. And they became an instant hit when they were test marketed in Cleveland in late uh, in the late 1963. I guess the, the numbers are a bit off there, but let's call it 63 or 64. According to to legend, the product became so popular that Kellogg's couldn't keep up with demand. The first shipment of Pop-Tarts uh, to stores sold out in weeks. They had to run ads apologizing for empty shelves. Even today, the company says they sell about $2 billion of the toaster pastries annually. Just a few months ago, uh, Bill Post returned to the Kellanova. Kellanova is now the company that makes Pop-Tarts officially. Plant in Michigan where it all began and look back at that heady time 60 years ago. Decision making was so much easier then. I think I would have been much more intimidated if we knew that it was going to be such a big thing. Four guys came through here. There were four vice presidents. They had a like a piece of pie, the shape of a slice of bread, fork marks around the edge, two pieces of dough with some filling in. They said, we have this idea. We'd like to put that in a toaster. My boss said, wow, it wasn't going well at all. And I said, uh, that's a great idea. I'd like to take that sample back, and I'll be back with a plan of what we ought to do. My boss, of course, he was so angry at me. To get that done, I had to break every rule in the book. That's how it started. First, we made some hand samples in the laboratory, 10,000 of them. Get those out to the shopping malls. Scaled up for a test market in Cleveland and they sold 45,000 cases of each flavor. They just blew off the shelves. I said to our superintendent, hey, why don't you take some Pop-Tarts and run them under that icer? Well, I'm melting a toaster. Do it anyway, you know, how they just put it in there. He said, I don't believe it. It didn't melt. The decision to make all four flavors iced took one day. That was 60 years ago. Things were different, you know. Yeah, things were different. Bill Post even had a personalized license plate on his little car that said Pop-Tart on it, to give you an idea. You notice that he mentioned the test marketing in Cleveland. Well, it so happens that uh, my next guest was in Cleveland back then, and her family served as early Pop-Tart tasters. Uh, Laura Holson went on to a huge career in journalism. She's an award-winning feature writer with the New York Times, founder of The Box Sessions, which is an annual gathering of talks and workshops with artists, Oscar-winning filmmakers, musicians, and authors, and so on. And she just wrote, back in November, she wrote this, in, or in the fall, she wrote this incredible piece about being a Pop-Tart taste-testing family. And I thought of her, because I'd read that article ages ago, I thought of her when Bill Post died, so we got a hold of her. And she's with us tonight. Laura, thank you so much. Hi, it's so good to be here. It was. I thought I it was really interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I always have a question for people. Do you remember your first Pop-Tart? <laughs> I, I do, because I must have been about 11 when I finally got my hands on one, because my mom refused to have sugary stuff in the house. So <laughs> I coveted the Pop-Tart like it was something from, a, like, mana from another planet. It did, yeah. <laughs> but I don't remember Absolutely. the first one. <laughs> it was delicious, yeah. though. 
Yes, exactly. Well, I should tell you I'm in California, and my family is from California. We weren't part of the original Cleveland oh. group. We came like a couple of years later. When oh, after, I get you. you know, they had, yeah, they, after they had been this you know, kind of hit, they wanted to kind of expand into the frosted market. So the first people, when they kind of started, you know, when they had their first Pop-Tarts, they were unfrosted. By the time it got to me and my family, we were the lucky ones. We got them frosted. Aha. All right. So you're basically just one step ahead of the process. That's the Pop-Tart we know today, right? Exactly, exactly. And the way, what happened is we would just get this huge box would come to that house and they, all these different Pop-Tart flavors would be wrapped in packages with little numbers on them. They had no names. We had no idea when we'd open a package what, what we were tasting. Um, but it was, they really just wanted, I think, an unbiased kind of um, idea of whether, you know, kids, mostly kids, like them or not. And you had, how did you, how did your, it was your mom, I guess, you, 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 you tried to divine how this all happened. You think it was, you, you had several siblings. You think your mom thought, this'll be free food. What a good, what a good idea. And we can do something fun. <laughs> well, we had a household like yours. I mean, I have seven brothers and sisters and our household, we didn't eat a lot of sugar or sweet stuff either. And actually, you know, we baked all our own food, you know, or, you know, cookies and, and, and stuff like that, or cakes. So, you know, we didn't really eat a lot of store-bought stuff. And so, you know, I went back and I interviewed all of my seven siblings. Which of you have never had that experience? I invite anybody to go, in, you know, interview their siblings about something. And nobody remembers how we got them. So I kind of surmised my mom being an enterprising woman, knowing that, you know, we don't eat a lot of, you know, uh, you know sweets from the store, thought, you know, oh boy, let's let's get them some candy or, you know, we'll get them these candy cakes and see if they like them. And she could kind of satisfy us and satisfy, uh, you know, what was then called Kellogg's at the time. Yeah. I was interested in seeing that you were never allowed to eat them for breakfast. <laughs> no, it was crazy. So, so it, I mean, there was a process. My parents had a whole process with it. So the box would arrive, it would get whisked into the house, I, we believe that it was locked in my dad. My dad had a, a, a little storage area that was all of his own. And we believe that they locked the, uh, the, the, the Pop-Tarts there because it is, if you know anything about a big family, if you leave any food out, it's gone like in 15 minutes. So, you know, dad would lock it away. And then normally in the evenings, you know, the box would reappear. Dad would carry it like it was precious cargo, you know, almost like, you know, or, you know, it was Christmas and he was carrying, you know, the baby Jesus to lay in the crash. And then, you know, he'd open it up and all the kids would be sitting around at the table and each of us would get a Pop-Tart to taste. And then we had like a little questionnaire to fill out or, or we, my mother would ask us questions about what we liked about them. Um, so they were, for us, they were an evening snack. And to be honest, I don't even think she toasted them. <laughs> I don't remember them being toasted. <laughs> Which is kind of the whole point, right? It was the whole point, wasn't it? I mean, that was the whole point of the icing, too, that they, they, they would all survive. I don't think I ever ate them toasted either. I was so happy to get one, get my hands on one. So, But you may have, I mean, your family may have indirectly had some say in which, which uh, flavors actually made it out there. Well, you know, I like to joke that, you know, one of the, 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 the flavors that people love the most are the frosted strawberries, uh, strawberry. And quite honestly, that was my favorite growing up. So I, I tease people and say, if you like frosted strawberries, because, you know, I, I made that happen for you. You got, the, you got Laura to thank for it. Well, how did that all wrap yeah. up? Did it just sort of one day the boxes stopped coming and that was it? 
pretty, that's kind of how it happened, right? It was, it was, you know, they would come periodically over a couple of months. Like they would come, you know, every other week for like two or three months and then they disappeared. So, you know, they were like this extraordinary luxury that, you know, kind of brought us, you know, gave us a coolness factor because none of the other kids at school had Pop-Tarts. So one of my sisters was saying that she would bring it to school and all the kids would like, you know, stand around it and marvel and look at it. And she would, you know, eat it and they would, you know, think, wow, you know, you're special. And, and, you know, I mean, I was like six or seven, so I was very young. I don't quite remember the special factor. I do remember, though, the the uh, snap of the frosting when you would like crack them in half and you could feel that snap. I don't know if there's, I haven't eaten a Pop-Tart in probably I don't know, 30 years, so I don't know if they still have that snap, but that's what I remember. She remembered feeling special. You know, another brother kind of remembered, you know, dad slipping him into his pocket as he'd go off to work. I mean, you know, as much as the story is about Pop-Tarts, it's a story about how families remember things. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's it's that different perspective depending on what age you were, how important it was. Um, I, I, then I guess, did you ever have them back in the house again, or was that kind of it for the for the family and the pop tart? That was kind of it because you know, again, my we were a family of bakers, so we made our own cookies. I mean, my mother would have this uh, you know huge bowl that she would make you know twelve dozen cookies um, in at a time. Um, so. You know, they kind of appeared one day and then they left and we went back to chocolate chip cookies and peanut butter cookies and, and uh, you know, they were just this strange thing that, that entered and then left as quickly as it came. I it was always interesting, say earlier, my old, yeah, go ahead. My oldest brother doesn't remember them at all. I mean, <laughs> there's a, a time span. And so when I was, I called him and I was asking him and he said, yeah, I don't remember them. And I go, how could you not? He goes, well, I was like 18. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you cared about cars and dating. You were not into the Pop-Tart situation. Yeah, I had the Beach Boys records, tapes on, or what I guess it wouldn't be tapes back then. But, but yeah, the, yeah, I just thought it was the, did you get, did they come in the foil packing and all that, that that made them look sort of, I just thought they were kind of futuristic, looked like something you'd eat if you lived on the moon, right? Okay, you totally hit on something. Because this was a huge debate in my family as to whether they came in silver packages or brown packages. Some kids remember them in silver packages. Some remember them in brown. And, I, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle of that. So the way I kind of think about it is that if they were like the old brands that were already, um, you know, on the market, they probably just shipped us the, you know, what they would, you know, you know put on in boxes that went on shelves. But the um, Pop-Tarts that were new, I think, came in brown packages because they didn't even know whether those were going to even make it to market. So you hit on the one thing. One sister got so angry because I called her three times, and I'm like, are you sure with silver packages? And she's she's like, you don't believe me. And I'm like, it's only two of you versus three of us who think it's brown. But I don't know. That's another another mystery. But that's my explanation. I did a movie, and I'm kind of... Uh, you did a movie? I made a movie, yeah, during the uh, the virus. We wrote a movie, and then we made it, and now we're finishing it, and it's going to come out pretty soon. Wow, what does that feel like? Amazing. Yeah. That's something I never thought I would do. And it's um, about how they invented the Pop-Tart. 
Jerry Seinfeld there talking about to the Today Show, talking about a movie that he's made called Unfrosted, which is about sort of the Pop-Tart Wars between Post and Kellogg back in the early 60s. Laura Holson is with us this half hour. She's an award-winning feature writer with the New York Times. But we're talking about an article she wrote back in the fall about how her family figured quite interestingly in the uh, development of the Pop-Tart when uh, they were sort of a test family. They were Pop-Tart guinea pigs for the frosted version. They were living out in California at the time. Of course, the inventor of the Pop-Tart just passed away at the age of 96, uh, Bill Post. He was from Grand Rapids in Michigan. Uh, Laura, you talked to Jerry Seinfeld on this, and I was surprised that the Pop-Tart still sort of has this sort of place in the cultural lexicon, even to this day, that people are still kind of fascinated by, by them. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because when I started doing research for this piece, you know, about my family and, and us being Pop-Tart taste testers, I, I just thought it was, you know, I didn't know what I what I was going to find. And I was shocked to find that there are, you know, people have created murals for the Pop-Tart. They, um, they're, if you go on YouTube, there are all these like unboxing of Pop-Tarts that, that people will do, or they'll do their own. It's now kind of a big deal on YouTube to like, taste test your own um, Pop-Tarts uh, on, on, on social media or, again, on YouTube. Um, and so I was really surprised at how much they were part of the cultural consciousness. Um, and especially I had seen Jerry Seinfeld, I don't know, probably like six or seven years ago in New York, and, and where he tells this story about the Pop-Tart and, and his love of it. But I'd kind of forgotten about it until I, when I started my research, I, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, that was a really funny bit he did. So I, you know, I called, called him and was, and, you know, said, Hey, can you talk about this? And, you know, this new movie he's got coming out called, you know, Unfrosted, the Pop-Tart story is based kind of on that bit that he did in his comedy, a comedy um, show. And, you know, over the pandemic, he uh, was with some friends and they were joking about what it'd be like to do a movie on Pop-Tarts and write a screenplay. And, and they ended up doing it and got it produced. And I think it's coming out in, in a couple of months, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's coming out soon. I, it was funny because I didn't. I went looking, of course, for that skit. The only one I could find. The audio was so terrible that I couldn't couldn't use it. So, listeners, apologies. It is quite funny when he talks about he still eats them, you found out. Yeah, he does. I mean, and, and I just think for, you know, with his type of humor, he loves, you know, what was the, his whole show was about. It was about nothing. And this is kind of like, you know, nothing to extreme to the extreme, right? In terms of like this breakfast food that you know, you know, people have been eating that you don't really think about, you know, when you you know grab a box um, at the store. Um, but he got an amazing, you know, uh, group of actors to you know kind of be in this movie with him, um, and it's you know it's a farce, as, as you kind of said so aptly about kind of the war between um, you know Post and its country squares and. Um, you know, uh, Kellogg's now Kellanova and, and their Pop-Tarts. Yeah, I think Amy Schumer, Melissa McCarthy, Hugh Grant, that's the names I was seeing. That's a, that's a lot of people to talk about. I, I guess it's a farce, yeah. right? So it should be interesting to see. And, and I mean, what, what an interesting thing to, to write about, considering all that you've written about over the years, many more sort of uh, hard-hitting things. And yet this one really stood out. It was a really lovely piece about, you're right, it's not just about Pop-Tarts. It's about family and memory. Yeah, well, you know, what I was most interested when it came out, um, I, what interested me when it came out was really reading the comments on the story. I, I don't know if, if your readers go back or your listeners go back and read the story. Look at the comments, because what you will find is 
um, there were other families like ours out there. Like, we didn't know growing up. We just thought, you know, in our hometown, we were the only people we knew like us. But once the story came out, you know, you realize that there were people all over the country who were trying, you know, different products in the 60s. I mean, it wasn't like on, on um, you know, social media now where, uh, um, you know, you can just, you know, fill out a form and something shows up. I mean, this is a real concerted effort to be – to you know, test these things. And people tested things like Eggo waffles and like all these different foods in the 60s as they were, you know, really trying, you know, that was, it was, it was an era of interesting futuristic food, right? You know, you had the space program, you had like freeze dried food, you had all these different things. And it seemed very, very experimental. And, you know, who else do you talk to? You know, then I think a lot of kids, actually, I think they, a lot of these products targeted children. Yeah. I had this weird situation in my family where I had one grandmother who was very much like your family where everything was homemade. My, my father's mother wouldn't have had a Pop-Tart in the house if, if you'd paid her for them, right? But my mom's mom was much more kind of into all this newfangled stuff. So we had all kinds of weird jello parfaits and like there was everything you could imagine, sort of the, the, the store of the future in her house. And I believe she's the one who fed me. She fed me a lot of Apple Jacks and, and chocolate over the years. I think she gave me my first Pop-Tart as well. Yeah, well, it's, again, if you go back and read those comments of people, every the, the reason why I asked you, do you remember, you know, when you had your first Pop-Tart? Because people actually do. Like, they know <laughs> who gave it to them. They know what flavor it was. They will debate, you know, do you should you have butter? Should you not have butter? Did you eat Frosted? <laughs> Did you not eat Frosted? And people were, had, had very strong opinions. I mean, it, it kind of was surprising because, you know, people have very strong uh, attachments to this food, for some reason, and um, and, and trust me, the, the opinions are hilarious. I mean, I, there were some people would would write and say, you know, why would you eat that? And you know, somebody would respond, but it's your childhood. How could you not? I mean, it's 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 interesting. We attached still to this, you know, you know, fruit school, well, you know, pastry yeah. and fruit. Well, I suppose we can all share these memories. That's sort of, they're collective, right? That's what makes them so interesting. Every, just about everyone's had a Pop-Tart at some point, so we could sort of, and they, and they are an interesting product. As, as Bill Post was so fun to point out that they had sort of invented them on the fly, and you could never do that today, he said. Laura, I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for, for saying yes and, and sharing that story. Oh, no. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and I don't know, go bake some cookies or have a Pop-Tart, whatever you like. <laughs> I haven't had a Pop-Tart in ages. I'll have to try. I had a McRib a few weeks ago because we were talking about them. I'll have to do Pop-Tarts as well. Laura, thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Nearly two weeks ago now, a Toronto-area woman pleaded guilty to fraud in a case that defies explanation in some ways. An agreed statement of facts entered into court in Nunavut, Karima Manji said that she had filled out forms in 2016 to enroll her daughters as Inuit children so they could become beneficiaries of the Nunavut Tungavik land claim, saying they were born to an Iqaluit woman named Kitty Noah and that Manji was their adoptive mother, even though she'd given birth to the twins, according to this agreed statement of fact. Her twin daughters, Amira and Nadia Gill, both now 25, received more than $158,000 from the Kakavak Association between 20 and 23 for education-related expenses. Manji will be sentenced in June. Uh, as part of her plea, the charges against her daughters were dropped. According to the statement of fact, Amira and Nadia, Nadia were unaware of the fraud that was going on. Uh, as I mentioned, her, their mom is to be sentenced in June. Um, but the end of the case, in some ways, this guilty plea still raises a lot of questions about what happened here. How did these two twins, who were very successful academically, 
how did their mother orchestrate this fraud whereby they'd suddenly be uh, entitled in some ways, or at least be able to apply for all this money that was due to indigenous kids, in this case, specifically uh, Inuit kids in Nunavut. Well, just as that guilty plea was coming in, Sarah Trelevin was finishing off an article. She's a freelance journalist with uh, in Toronto, and she wrote this article for the Toronto Life called, for Toronto Life magazine, rather, called The Great Pretenders, How Two Faux Inuit Sisters Cashed In, and she joins me now. Sarah, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. Tell me a bit about where this begins, because I think I think if we begin at the beginning, um, the sisters, although raised in, in Etobicoke, uh, do seem to have a connection to the North, uh, at least through their mom going way back. So the story does begin in the North. Um, Karima Manji, the mother of the two girls, and our details are a little bit fuzzy, spent some time working in a Kaluit. We know that we know she dated an Inuk man for several years. Um and at some point, she relocated back to Ontario and had a family with another man, Gurmail Gill, the girl's father. It's sort of unclear exactly why she headed to the north. Um, you know, we work, we understand that she was working in property development or management. But those years of her life are pretty fuzzy. What we do know is she obviously maintained some sort of unshakable connection to it in her mind. Just so listeners are clear here, the girls of whom we're talking, uh, the sisters, are indeed born to two South Asian parents in Etobicoke. That is our understanding. And they are twins. They are yes. twins. Um, I spoke with a former colleague of Karima's uh, who told me that she knew Karima when she was pregnant with the girls and that they'd thrown her a baby shower. Um, it seems at this point it is it is indisputable that Gurmail and Karima are the girl's biological parents and that they have no biological Inuk connection uh, that anyone can establish. Now, Amira and Nadia, the sisters, are already successful, right? I mean, one of them is is a very, very good uh, soccer player. The other one is very good academically. These are two young women who are achieving in every which way right through their teens. These are bright lights. I mean, these this is one of the sort of core questions that has not been fully answered. Um, these were young women who are incredibly bright, incredibly ambitious, incredibly motivated to make their way in the world. And they have seemingly all the tools to do this, raised in a fairly solid middle-class family in, in Ontario. Um, you know, they could have gotten by on their seemingly natural charisma and their hard work. So, why the adoption of this identity that has now been proven false? Why did they need this extra layer of, of essentially exploitation that enabled their success? We, we haven't really heard much from the girls, so we don't really know the answer to that. Tell me where this all begins then, because this has to do quite simply with using a system that's in place to get money to go to, to pay for your education. In other words, money that's destined for, in this case, Inuit kids or others that went to these two uh, sisters instead. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened was, again, from what we know, and the record is not complete and the girls have made limited public comments, is somewhere around their 18th birthday, Karima Manji applied for Inuk enrollment, which basically means that they would be entitled to status under the Nunavut agreement. So that essentially means that they, it would be on paper an identity shift that would open up certain scholarships and benefits to the girls. Now, 
what we don't know is whether or not this came as a surprise to them on their 18th birthday. I mean, I think my mother came to me when I was 18 and said, hey, look, you're indigenous and I have a card for you. I, I think I, you know, I don't think I'd say I have no further questions. Great. I have no further questions. Do you know how I can use this card to get some money? You know, and so we have no idea what those conversations were. We don't know what the girls were told. What we do know is that Karima Manji misrepresented the situation on her application to the enrollment granting organization in the North. And what she essentially said was that the ex-partner of her ex-boyfriend when she lived in Iqaluit was the girl's biological mother. The organization, there have been questions about whether they exercise due diligence, but the organization could not get in touch with the woman who was listed as the biological mother and ultimately granted the status to the girls without her input. And this opens up, I mean, we've already mentioned just how uh, gifted the sisters were. And therefore, when they went to apply for scholarships, given what they were doing, I think one is an engineer, uh, the other one is studying law, I believe. I mean, she's these a lawyer. Are, yeah, she's she's a lawyer. These, yeah. these are two very accomplished young women. So when they go to, to apply for scholarships, clearly they sort of get to the top of the list in terms of merit, right? In terms of who would get them. The issue here is, do they deserve access to this money? Well, I mean, I, I think... We actually have an answer to that. They don't deserve access to this right. money. I mean, this is all the all of these scholarships, all of these resources were applied for under false pretenses. And you know, I think that I think that this sort of gets at part of the full accounting that has yet to happen in this case. You know, we've watched the criminal case wind down. As often happens at the end of criminal cases, it has been dissatisfying for a lot of parties. But there's still this question of the girls who have now had their charges dropped. Their mother's taken full responsibility. But what is sort of the opportunity cost that these girls are implicated in? You know, for the two of them taking a spot uh, that was intended for individuals who need a hand up, who went without? And it's, I mean, the answer seems clear. Indigenous people, Inuit people went without because these girls decided they had a claim to this identity or, or, if you believe the case that was, has been put forward, that they believed earnestly they had a claim to this identity. And so, you know, we're talking about fairly large sum of money. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that went into these girls' pockets and they weren't entitled to it. And, and so part of the remaining question is, what now? What kind of accountability can we expect from a case like this? Um, you know, their mother has a very, let's say, colorful background. She has already been convicted of fraud once for stealing from a nonprofit that she was working for, the March of Dimes. The girls have had their charges dropped. And, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how far their kind of reputational damage extends, whether they're able to sort of pick up where they left off, whether Nadia will be considered a lawyer in good standing, whether Amira will be hired by a government contractor, you know, all of these things. I don't know whether they'll be able to resume their lives as they were prior to these allegations. 
But I, I think there's also this question of whether they should pay back this money that they were never entitled to. Sarah Trelevin is a freelance journalist with Toronto Life. Her latest article is called The Great Pretenders, How Two Faux Inuit Sisters Cashed In. Uh, this is the story of Amira and Nadia Gill, both of whom were very accomplished students. They were born and raised in Etobicoke. Their mom, Karima Manji, had spent some time in Nunavut back in the early 90s and at some point decides that she's going to concoct this story. She's already pleaded guilty to fraud in this uh, earlier earlier this month, actually, uh, that she was going to concoct this story whereby they were adopted and they were, in fact, um, had indigenous roots and were and were Inuit, essentially. And through this, they applied for scholarships, received them and and basically got a lot of money to study out of this. And it's all come to light now. Again, mom has pleaded guilty to this. The charges against the sisters have been dropped. Both of them. One's a lawyer. She lost her job. Another one was working for a government agency. She's lost her job through the the whole controversy surrounding this. Uh, Sarah, when you looked into the checks and balances of this, you mentioned, I, I think mom at one point had applied for this and had been turned down, then found another name to apply for a woman who was much harder to find. And therefore, clearly at some point, the checks and balances in this completely fall apart. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an element of good faith applied to some of these processes. And unfortunately, what we see in this case, and as we actually see in a really devastating fashion, there are lots of people who are willing to exploit weak or non-existent connections to various Indigenous communities across Canada to bogart any potential benefits for themselves. And it's a very cynical, but I think, you know, in this case, uh, I think the probably the idea that somebody had the name of a specific community member, maybe um, I don't know whether there was any familiarity with Karima um, by anyone on the council. We're talking about a small community in a small place, but there are questions about sort of checks and balances. My understanding is that the status grant organization has altered some of their practices in the wake of this. But it's, you know, fundamentally the most depressing thing about it. And I did find this story kind of depressing to work on because it is so exploitative and it is fairly pervasive. You know, I spoke to uh, a Métis lawyer who specializes yeah. in this area. And she Taye, me, yeah, we've spoken to her on the show, actually. She's a uh, yes, yes. She's incredible and very insightful and very familiar with this issue and um, has a lot of clarity on it. And, you know, she told me that the estimates are upwards of 25% of academia and Canadian public service, people claiming indigeneity are in fact frauds, 25%. And wow. it, it's it's unfathomable. But I think we've really, I think people sort of are getting the sense that they're hearing these stories over and over again now that this has really become a newsworthy issue, but we have barely scratched the surface of people who are taking advantage. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of very nervous people in a lot of positions who are wondering when their turn is, essentially. Yeah. And your work, I should point out, stands on the shoulders of some other very fine journalistic work, too, that sort of started to raise alarms about this because there was a website at one point. I mean, they really, the sisters and mom really put themselves out there with this indigeneity mm-hmm. identity uh, and, and, and very much sort of were cashing in on it even after they finished school, um, sort of setting up this website called Canada that was selling indigenous themed masks and so on and different stuff, mm-hmm. you know, masks for, you know, COVID masks, essentially. But really, there was there was red flags were starting to get raised a while back about this through different members, community journalists, essentially from from the area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly didn't break this story. I believe it was Jeff Peltier who broke this story. And uh, then there was sort of like an essential citizen sleuth element to this where people on social media, particularly Inuit people, were 
looking at these two sisters who they didn't recognize. And because it's such a small community, they were um, confused about where these two women came from and what their possible connections to the North could be. And it seems like as soon as they started digging, you know, uh, they were just finding signs that that this was potentially fraudulent. For example, one of Nadia's online bios for a soccer team she played on has her listed as born in Mississauga, you know, and and they started sort of building a case against these two sisters and their mother really before anyone else was meaningfully interested in this story. I think, you know, this is a case of a family that was whispered about for a long time before media engagement, certainly before the RCMP became involved, certainly before there was any suggestion of consequences. And yeah, I think ultimately there was a high level of a high desire for some form of community accountability, you know, that people knew that this wasn't right. People knew it didn't make sense and they were quite keen to expose them. Yeah. Mom Karima Manji has pleaded guilty to this now. Um, I suppose when you look at it, what, what to take away from it, it's tough to take away much other than the cynicism, isn't it? In some senses. I mean, she's pleaded guilty to this. The daughters, uh, have, the charges against them have been dropped conceivably within the criminal court case. Uh, it would be plausible that mom, that the daughters didn't know that mom had sort of cooked this up and here we are. But it was the cynicism that, that struck me from the get-go, the kind of belief mm-hmm. that they could get away, that every, belief, at least in this case, maybe we just talk about mom, but the belief that they could get away, get away with this. Yeah, there's something very brazen and shameless about a lot of this. And it is, it's very cynical. And it is, like I said, kind of depressing to sort of, to see how orchestrated this is and how incredibly selfish it is you know, I think it's it's a real challenge to get into the girls' heads. Um, I haven't had a huge amount of success doing that or speaking to people very close to them. Um, but I, I think certainly an investigation into this family raises, at this point, more questions than it answers. You know, you have two incredibly bright young women. You have to ask what they knew, when they knew it how they were convinced if they were convinced that any of this was appropriate. And I think you ask yourself how they could have been earnestly convinced that this was appropriate. And then you have to ask themselves if they weren't earnestly convinced, how were they coerced into believing that that committing fraud on this level was in their best interests? Well, Sarah, uh, to be continued. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're faced with an exceptional situation that puts jobs at risk, that puts our international reputation on the line, our government's prepared to take action. To guarantee the summer construction season for the workers who are counting on it, and to ensure the project is built to completion in a timely fashion, the federal government has reached an agreement with Kinder Morgan to purchase the existing Trans Mountain pipeline and the infrastructure related to the Trans Mountain expansion project. Well, that was Bill Morneau. My, how t- time flies, doesn't it? The former finance minister there back in May of 2019 announcing that Ottawa was indeed purchasing the Transbound Pipeline and Kinder Morgan's Kinder Morgan Canada's core assets for $4.5 billion. Fast forward nearly six years now, and while there have been further delays already in 2024, that pipeline expansion is nearly done. The Transbound Pipeline is Canada's only oil pipeline. 
to the West Coast. And of course, this expansion will increase the pipeline's capacity to nearly 890,000 barrels per day from 300,000 barrels per day currently. So that's a huge increase. Um, the construction, again, more than 98% complete has been underway for more than three years now. And apparently, Canadian oil producers have already begun ramping up production, uh, expecting that the additional export capacity will come online. Now, this will have a big impact in a lot of ways. First of all, it's expected to improve the prices of, that Canadian oil companies receive for, for the oil that we sell. There is sort of a discount that's factored into Canadian oil because of the way that it has to be transported. Um, of course, it's owned by the federal government, as I as mentioned there, it was purchased back in 2018 uh, to get that project over the line after it was scuttled by Kinder Morgan. The, the costs, everyone is well aware of just how much the costs of balloons since then. It started off at $5.4 billion. It's now somewhere around 31 perhaps even more, $31 billion at this point. Uh, that's been blamed on a bunch of, bunch of stuff that you can certainly look up. But as the end draws near, those who watch the oil and gas industry closely, especially from abroad, and this is what I found really interesting – say it will be a game changer for Canada. My next guest says that for the last decade, the Canadian oil industry has experienced firsthand the meeting up with friends like these who needs enemies. Because to the South, the most obvious export route and a huge client, the US, um, but American courts and politicians have blocked new oil pipelines, sort of strangling the Canadian industry. And the bottleneck has cost Canadian oil companies billions of dollars in foregone revenue, delaying the revenues, uh, the industry's growth, rather. Um, so I thought we would dig into this because this was a Bloomberg opinion piece written from London, and it very much focused on what impact that the Trans Mountain Pipeline will have on the Canadian oil market. And I thought it was, we've talked about it so much internally in this country, I thought it'd be great to get an external point of view on some of the challenges that this project has faced, the huge amount of money that was invested in it, whether it'll ever, will ever get it back, and just what impact it will have uh, for the worldwide view of Canada as an oil producer. Because, of course, this is probably an amazing stat. Something like 25% of the world's oil now is produced in North America by the U.S. and us. And that's a pretty remarkable number. I don't know if we wield our power enough over it. Uh, Javier Blas is the Bloomberg Opinion columnist, columnist covering energy and commodities. He's co-author of a book called The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. And he joins me from London. Javier, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've had quite a long interest in this topic. Just from, from your point of view, as you cover global the global energy markets, um, tell me a bit about your interest in Canada and pipeline and Canada's ability to export its own oil, which has always been a big problem. I, I always think that we, uh, when I say we, is the kind of the global, the global energy industry and the global media, it kind of underplays Canada in, in the energy market. At the end of the day, it is the four largest um, oil producing country, much larger than most of the members of the OPEC cartel. So certainly anything that happens in Canada oil industry has a lot of an impact uh, worldwide. So the price I'm going to pay at the pump here in England, where I'm based, is going to be affected by what is happening in Canada one way or the other. And this pipeline has been long in the making. Uh, the government of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, at some point decided it had to be done with public money. The cost of building it just balloon as, as everything done. Uh, big projects usually cost more and take longer to make. So, uh, but it's now coming into fruition and it's going to allow the Canadian oil industry to increase production. And, and it's coming at a moment where OPEC is also battling for control of the oil market. So all of those elements makes for a very interesting story. And, and, and you know, to see Canada for the first time 
in a in a meaningful way being able to export somewhere his oil that is not the United States is a big deal. Because uh, I think Canadians understand this, but over the past decade, Canada has very much been hamstrung by decisions made on the other side of the border. It was often seen that that the U.S. was very energy friendly, but in some senses, when it comes to being a conduit for Canadian oil, it hasn't been. Well, uh, I, I started my column saying that Canada has experienced firsthand the meaning of with friends like these right. who needs enemies. And I mean the United States. I mean, you have south of the border a fantastic client for Canadian oil, but also a potential outlet for bigger markets overseas uh, using the high seas. And, and however, by different reasons, mostly political reasons, some, some low reasons, uh, the United States did not allow for a meaningful expansion of Canadian pipelines. And it meant the Canadian oil was effectively trapped in the North American region. And that meant a lot lower prices for Canadian oil producers, something very well known in, in Canada. But it's not that well known outside Canada. The fact that Canadian oil producers at times, because they were effectively, as you say, hamstrung by the United States, have to sell their oil at half the international price is surprising outside Canada. I mean, it's something as valuable as a barrel of oil being selling at a significant discount to market prices. If you are coming from outside Canada, it's almost like, hold on a second, what, what exactly you said? $50 a barrel discount, you said? That, that is quite shocking. And, and, and it's, it's certain that uh, TMX could change this in a very meaningful way. When you look at what TMX can bring, because, of course, it is one pipeline and, and, and understandably, it'll probably be at capacity fairly quickly. But what, what do you think it brings to Canada's ability to be able to, in some ways, profit more from its own oil industry? Well, it brings a significant amount of, of export capacity. You are right. It will go at capacity very, very soon. So so in, in a way, the, the bottleneck moves from one, one, one place to the other. But I think that um, it, will, it will do two things. It, it really provides a, a, different, a, a different route to a complete different market, the Asian market, which is going to put a price on Canadian oil outside the United States for the first time. I think it reduced the differential, that discount, the Canadian oil sells against American oil, which has oscillated anywhere between 15 and $50. I think that probably narrows that discount to about $10 a barrel. But you multiply by the amount of barrels that trade, is about 6 million barrels. That's a significant uh, increase in revenue for every oil producer, every oil company in Canada, but also for the provinces because they take royalties based on that price. But I think that the Perhaps the most important thing, it just stops these um, blow-ups in the differential from time to time. I think that a, a differential for Canadian oil producers, that's the, the, the price difference between American oil or United States oil and Canadian oil of, say, $20 is a problem, but it is something that is manageable. What is very worrisome for the industry has been when there is a problem in other pipelines and that differential goes from $20 to $50. That's when Canadian oil companies are leaving a lot of money on the table. And I think that TMX probably will stop this happening. Right. Because the alternative has been rail, and that's just not an effective way. Necessarily, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of oil moves by rail, but it's just not an effective way necessarily it, to, to keep ours going. 
it is very expensive uh, to move barrels of oil by, by, by railway. It's also more dangerous, more prone to accidents. By all complaints about potential spills from pipelines, pipelines are a more safe way to transport oil than to do it in railway. Railway is what the oil industry used to do you know, in the years of John Rockefeller a hundred years ago. Pipeline is the, is the proper way to do things. Javier Blas is with us, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering energy and commodities. Javier, uh, you looked into the to the investment that the federal government made in buying the TMX pipeline, and you found that it probably wasn't a great um, it wasn't a great use of taxpayers' money, but it might have been a necessary one. I think it was a necessary one, but let's let's kind of uh, start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the, the 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 government in 2018, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau nationalized the, the effectively the pipeline that is already existing and and the project to build the the new much larger one. Uh, the government said this was a sound financial opportunity. Um, at that point, the project was not going to cost nearly as much as as it has ended costing. You know, Canada is going to spend. At the end of this project, somewhere probably in excess of 35 billion Canadian dollars. And the pipeline, if it was to be sold to the private sector, I think that is not worth more than anywhere between 10 billion and 25 billion Canadian dollars. So it, there is potentially a big loss of uh, taxpayer money for building this. However, over time, because the Canadian oil industry will do better, that is, increase the GDP of the country, there is more, more tax revenue uh, for the, the, the federal government, there is also more tax revenue and royalties for the provinces. So one probably is going to compensate the other. But the government starts from a losing position of probably something like, I, I think mostly on, on American dollars, about $10 billion. And over the next years and potentially decades, it will recoup some of that money. But if you look at just pure numbers right away today, this does it make any sense financially? Will I put my own personal money? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> but if I think in more like governments will be thinking about the next perhaps 10, 20, 30 years, then perhaps it makes money. But it's, it's quite ironic, particularly looking at from outside Canada, where you, you think about Prime Minister Trudeau and you think almost, uh, and forgive me for, for the expression, but you think almost about tree huggers, someone very committed with climate change and, and, the, and the battle against fossil fuels. Well, the Canadian government has done quite a bailout to the, to the oil industry in the country. Indeed. And this is a conversation that continues because there's a lot of criticism uh, of this government for not acting fast enough, for instance, on things like LNG and trying to get be able to have uh, be able to get Canadian LNG to market to replace what's being lost from Russia and so on. Uh, but what you point out, I think, is just the complexities of, of moving that stuff around and how long and how expensive it is. There are no easy fixes, I don't think. Do you think it's worth it? Should Canada be building more of this infrastructure at this point? Uh, currently, the, the, uh... Even we, 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 we talk about transitioning away from fossil fuels into renewable energy, more electricity. What I see is that global demand for oil continues to increase. Global demand from gas continues to increase. So it's not Canada doing it. Someone else is going to be doing perhaps in the Middle East. We talk about uh, liquefied natural gas, LNG. We have seen a massive expansion of Qatari uh, LNG. Um, I, I rather, from a European point of view, we buy 
LNG from the United States and Canada that we buy it from the Middle East. We buy it from our partners across the Atlantic rather than from a, a region known for his instability. So in so many ways, I think that uh, there is an interest for countries, for example, in Europe, to see a, a larger development of the industry in, in Canada. But there is also one thing that often is missed from outside Canada and the United States, and it's the massive role that both the U.S. and Canada play to, today on energy markets. Do you think use on oil today, or at least in 2024, on average of 2024, the United States and Canada are going to account for 25% of all the oil that is produced worldwide? And that's a massive increase for where we were 20 years ago. Yeah, and it feels like Canada rarely uses. I, I mean, America to some extent has been has been more effective at using this, but Canada's rarely used this as a political tool or as a tool of global influence. For instance, I think that you are absolutely right. I mean, you think about different presidents that have benefited in the United States from the shale revolution. I think that probably we start with with Barack Obama, continue with uh, Donald Trump, and and now with with Joe Biden. All of them have used the resurgence in American, in United States oil production and gas production for a geopolitical benefit. And Canada doesn't really play that card. And I think that that's a mistake. So when we look to the future, then, I mean, with this is coming online, the idea is, and I think you point this out in your piece, that there mightn't be many more pipelines. And if there are to be more pipelines, then a government's going to have to take the kind of financial risk and perhaps the reputational risk of doing what happened with TMX, which is essentially spend a lot of money and, and recoup it in the long run, but also have to take the heat for the for the expense of the pipeline in the short term. Yeah. I, I, you know, what is the future? Do we need more uh, oil pipelines from Canada? Perhaps uh, we don't, we, there are nothing on plan and, and probably by the time that anything new can be built, it's going to be a bit too late. But I do think that there is an opportunity for Canadian exports of natural gas and LNGs will be playing a role. and and and. Looking at the U.S. kind of rethinking what to do on LNG, I think that that's opening an opportunity for Canada to to approve new LNG export capacity. Well, Javier, I, I appreciate your interest in Canada. It's always interesting to have an outsider's point of view. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. The Oscars are less than three weeks away now. The BAFTAs, the British... Uh, Oscars essentially were held over the weekend and Oppenheimer cleaned up once again. I watched, my wife and I watched Oppenheimer last night. It's excellent. It's long. It's excellent though. It's very, very good. I can see why it's doing so well uh, in all these awards. We've spoken with a number of Canadians who will be up for Oscars on March the 10th, uh, including Nova Scotia's Ben Proudfoot, an Oscar winner already, who has yet another nod for in the best documentary category for something that he's done called The Last Repair Shop, which is excellent. You can see it on YouTube, I think. And uh, Nisha Pahuja was on last week uh, with us to talk about her nomination for best documentary for the NFB film To Kill a Tiger. Director Silin Song, whose movie Past Lives is up for best picture and best screenplay. And of course, Ryan Gosling is up for Best Supporting Actor for Barbie. Robbie uh, Robertson is up for his music in uh, in uh, the To Kill Flowers of the... I'm going to forget the name of the Scorsese movie here. Uh, Killers, Kill, Killers of the Flower Moon. Of course, I've seen it. I've seen it. I remember it vividly because Taylor Swift's movie was playing next door, so it was a bit of a raucous three hours of Scorsese. Um, 
Joining that illustrious group, by the way, is a young filmmaker from Montreal who started working on a short film that he's nominated for his first back in university. Uh, director Vincent René Lortie's film Invincible tells the story of the last 48 hours of a 14-year-old boy's life as he grapples with some self-destructive impulses and his yearning for freedom because he's in a youth and he's in a, essentially in juvenile detention and also his struggles with mental health. It was nominated for an Oscar in the live action short film category and it's inspired by true events involving uh, René Lotzi's childhood friend Marc-Antoine Bernier who died when they were just teens. This is sort of in French but have a quick listen. Next. Hello. Téléphone? Drogue? Oh. Happy, it's the silence I capture. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful little movie, and I think all of us had friends when we were teens who got into trouble and, and who it was inexplicable sometimes. I had a friend when I was a teenager, not a very close friend, but a friend who, uh, who died when we were just 17, actually, in a scooter accident. And he was sort of reminded me of the kid in this movie, um, René Lortie's friend, Marc-Antoine Bernier, who inspired this film, by the way. Um, again, it's a debut film, which is amazing considering how well it's done. It's won a bunch of awards around the world, and now it's up for for an Oscar. It's up against a bunch of heavyweights, including Wes Anderson, who you might know. Uh, but it was great to be able to speak and invite um, Vincent René Lorty uh, onto the show to talk about this as he gets set for the 96th Academy Awards uh, coming up on March the 10th. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. What's it been like since uh, since the announce since the award announcement? I know this film had already been been received quite a bit of quite a few accolades, but uh, but I guess things kind of change when you hear your name your name and your movie announced by as an Oscar nominee. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think it's been um, you know that the word I keep repeating in the last few days and few weeks is that it's totally surreal because like we. We, I, I don't think we were really expecting being nominated. The, the truth is that there was so many great films just in the shortlist this year, and uh, also very big studio movie. Like so there was Disney, there was Netflix, there was Sony. So it's like just the idea of being there was like, you know, of course we had a little bit of hope. Like I think everybody had some hope, but just when when we saw her name on the screen, I don't know if you've seen the video because we filmed each other when when we uh, got the news. Yes, but we 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 did we did scream and we did hug uh, each other and, and cried and it was a very beautiful moment and and um yeah since then it's been non-stop um you know I, I you know just meeting people and and of course talking about the film but honestly it's only good because it's it's uh it makes me it makes me very happy that I get to talk in a more broad and worldwide, like not worldwide, but I get I get to speak a little bit more about the film and to a wider audience. That's what I would, yeah. Yeah, it's it must have been gratifying too because having watched the film a few times now and knowing the story behind it, it is a very personal story. So it's almost as if something that little part of you that went out to make this movie is now being celebrated for having done such a a good job of paying tribute to to your friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I think um, the fact that it's when I did this film, it, it was really, really personal. And I think like I never imagined that this film would reach so many people. Um, and I, this is what makes it the experience even more beautiful, because 
you know, yes, as you just mentioned, we did travel with the film for, I would say, probably a year before the Oscars. Uh, and I went to Korea, I went to uh, Spain, um, France, and and so on. And, and just, but every time I got to screen to a different culture, different audience, I, I got a, a lot of people come to me and tell me that, you know, they, they knew someone like him or they were him when they were younger. And just, the, and that made me realize that the story we told is uh, very much more universal. And that's kind of make it even, you know, yeah, that's make it very special to, to us, like, because... Of course, this is this is very personal, and yeah, yeah. I, I, for listeners who I'll, I'll repeat this, the film uh, is called Invincible or Invincible. It's about tech, really. It's it's a tribute to uh, a childhood friend of, of Vincent's called Marc Antoine Bernier, who dies at the age of fourteen. In fact, there's even uh, a tribute to him uh, and and his age. You notice right away that from 1995 to, to 2008, I guess it was, and, and it's just what happened to him because he'd gone from being sort of the and this happened. I think we all knew this in teenagehood. We had one friend who sort of went from being you know, we were all kind of the same and all of a sudden they went off the rails a bit. And, and, and I think at that age, we struggled to understand why that could possibly be. And as we get older, I think we start to have a better and clearer idea of what may happen uh, to us when, at yeah. different stages of life. That must've been what, I mean, that's a very, very difficult topic to pick up, isn't it? To, mm-hmm. to sort of look back at that, at that moment in time and try and, and try and translate that to a 30 minute film. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think that like when I was 14 years old, so I was the same age as him. So like, of course, like I, I, there was many, many things I couldn't really understand from that um, event, from that incident, uh, starting with the fact that the year before he passed away, um, Marc Anton was pushing a lot of people away from him. And, and you can really sense, you can really see that in the film, but he was pushing me away as well. So I, I, you know, when this happened, I thought it was an accident. I thought there was, um, um, I thought that was, that was it. Like I, and then a few years ago, I decided to do a lot of research about that story, including, you know, just a meeting with his family, with his, with his friends as too. And, and so we all got a coffee separately. And one of the first thing that his dad told me was that it, it could have been a, a suicide more than an accident. And, you know, it was, it, it wasn't a sure thing. And even today, this is not a sure thing. I just want to mention that, mm-hmm. but since, but, but still, like, I, I understood that there was something much more complex about this story. And so I started to do a lot of research. And while I did research, you know, I, I got to know my friend better. I got closer to him. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I decided to make a film about the 48 hours before he passed away. Yeah. And and just watching it, it's very true. I mean, I, I and I know how difficult that can be because getting access to something like a juvenile detention center is not a simple thing in Quebec. You really wanted to make it. Um, I mean, it, there's both a very beautiful artistic side to it, but there's also a very gritty reality side to it. And I imagine that's probably, uh, although it looks easy once it's put on down on film and edited and so on, that's not easy to, to pull off logistically. No, no, that's a, no. And actually, you know, there's a lot of things about the film and I know this is a fiction, this is narrative, but there's a lot of things that are as close as possible to the truth, including the fact that we film in the real juvenile center where the, the story really happened, which is in Montreal. And, and so, you know, there's a scene in the film where they got into uh, his bedroom and this is, this was a real bedroom, um, you know, very, 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 very small, you know, a single bed and there's not a lot of room to move. And so just to be there with the team, it felt 
it was a you know very strange yet very beautiful moment at the same time um i think everybody got to understand a bit more the, the better the reality that these kids were were leaving and 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 same for like for extent like all the um, kids in the film they are all non-actors some that i've been to juvenile center before some that had trouble with the law or or, or so on so it was like you know, for me, it was important to work with people that could really understand the story because this is a very, this is a tricky project. This is, I had to take, to, to do it with respect, but also with care to make sure that it was done the right way. Yeah. How did you, because you knew the central character in the story, how difficult was it to pick someone to play that character? Because they would have really had to resonate with you at the same time. They couldn't be an exact replica. Like you couldn't pick exactly the same person. I would have thought it would have had to do more with the the vibe. I know that's not a great word, the vibe than the look. Yeah. Um, the, the strange thing, and, and I, uh, you know, the strange thing is that the actor is actually really looks similar to the real Mac, but I didn't know, I didn't knew that when I casted him because he had much longer hair, a uh, different style as well. Uh, but, but so we, we did a lot of casting prior to that. Um, and then as soon as this actor is, his name is Lil Kim, as soon as he got into the audition room, he, um, you know, I was just, already like I was struck by how close he was to his emotion he was he was amazing but I think in his own way he could really understand and relate to the real character to the real Mark and for me that was really important and so we start to you know of course I casted him and then we start to work together for almost two months before the shoot we saw each other every week um, and then, um, you know, at some point I shaved his head, uh, myself during, during <laughs> rehearsal. You, you did it yourself? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, it was about like, you know, I, for me, it was important to bond with him, like to also, right. I wouldn't say be friend because I, we still had that professional relationship, but still like to have these moments where we get to know each other a bit better. And that was one of them. Like, of course, there's just a really funny moment at, at then, but then I, when we finish, and I have a picture of that. I was like, he looks so different. And but yes, he looked also like my friend. And um, that was a coincidence. But um, yeah, that that, that that was that casting process was the most important pro- aspect of the film. Director Vincent René Lerti is with us this half hour. He is up for an Academy Award. Those will be held on March the 10th. He is nominated in the Best Live Action Short Film category alongside some big names like Wes Anderson, some big studio films. This is a great uh, little movie because it is 30, 30 minutes long and it tells the story, uh, the last 48 hours of a friend of his, as a matter of fact, from childhood uh, called Marc-Antoine Bernier, who died at the age of 14. Um, and it all takes place. It takes place mainly in a juvenile detention center and it just sort of charts his want to get out out of there. Um, Vesan, when you look back at it, I guess one of the hardest things to understand when you're that age is the emotional trauma and, or the emotional turmoil that someone is going through. And, and you felt that it was important in this story. I think one of the things you, you, you seem to have discovered with time and reflection and experience is that there were mental health issues going on with Marc-Antoine that maybe we didn't recognize that and maybe we should do a better job of recognizing now and in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. I think that, um, you know, while, while I was doing the research, I, I saw to meet with uh, like mental health professional and people working also at the juvenile center. And one of the first thing, um, you know, one of the, 
the few things actually they told me was that, um, you know, when it comes to adult today, like I, I think the conversation about mental health is much more open and it's much more easy to talk about it, like at home, you know, in a relationship, um, at, a, at a workplace, like mental health becomes an important topic. But when it comes to teenager and, and, and kids' mental health, this is something totally different. First, first of all, it's actually very hard for someone of his age or younger to express his emotion in the right way or the way an adult would today with maturity or, or with age. So, um, and, and, and so the matter of fact, for my friend, I think that a lot of therapists, a lot of people at that time were telling his, his family, he's okay. He will just get better with the age. Like that's just, uh, you know, he's, he, that's just a phase and, and, and it will get better. Uh, you know, and and it didn't. Uh, but I and and even though I know that his story is very specific and it's very like it's not every kid that 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 uh, have this very tragic ending. There's a few, but there's also a lot of them that are um, you know growing with mental health issues. And then when they come to adult, they 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 don't they still don't have the tool to express it. They still don't know, and they so they will have to live with that for the rest of their life. So it's kind of like. So, so it was. It is important to talk about about that um, that subject, and and I felt like it was it, that was you know. Of course, this is my theory, but I think my friend was was fighting uh, mental health issues. Yeah. Well, watching it, I I often thought you know thought back to because I we grew up in the same sort of the same parts. We grew up in the same city essentially, and a lot of the way it looks is very familiar. I, I was trying to imagine thirteen um, year old you talking to 13-year-old Marc-Antoine and saying, one day I'm going to make a movie about you and it's going to be nominated for an Oscar. And I thought, what a conversation that would be. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I cannot imagine what it would have been. I think, but I do, you know, that was the beautiful part about um, making that film as remembering moment that I have with my friend that are not about, because I know I was also a bad kid. Like I was, I could do, um, you know, I could go, uh, you know, do that stuff in the street with him. And, and I'm not always part of what I did, but I would say that I also have very beautiful memory of that friend where he was set like very sensitive and 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 you know um, like I have so much empathy and love to his family and me and his and his friends so it's like I, and and for me that's kind of like the best memory I can I that's the one of the best gifts I I got from making that film is these memories that I got back because that's not only what I remember from him yeah you you pay tribute to I mean he's a complicated kid right you pay tribute to his writing yeah, I, I did um, because he was he was the best of his class, and and we were actually in a very like you know kind of I would say tough uh, not tough school but like difficult like it was um it was hard to have good grades at that school that's and 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 he was the best he he would always had the best grades he 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 had a very beautiful way of writing as well um, he was ahead of everybody. But the fact is that it was also inside of him was also a big immaturity. There was also like a, a, a wave to like very push away the people around him, the adult especially. That um, that's how he got um, expelled from from our high school. But yes, he he was it was beautiful. And so the the writing in the film, there's a poem in the film that came from it. It did came from some different texts that I got from uh, his his family. But it, especially like I I. I took everything that I remember from him and I work with an, an artist from Montreal. Her name is Marlise 
uh, Sydney Cal, and she's a, a she's an amazing writer, sing, a singer as well. And we we worked together on that text, on that poem. Um, it was a little bit my letter to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Vincent, I'm glad it's been so well received, given what a personal project it was. And uh, good luck. We'll be watching for you on March the 10th. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and have a, a beautiful day. Thank you for doing this.